You are listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. For more information about our church, please visit www.hopechurchipswich.net. Well, good morning, everyone. If we haven't met before, my name's Tom, and I lead the team of elders here at Hope Church. And today I'm going to be bringing to a close this series that we've been going through in the story of Joseph. And uh, next week, we're going to be starting a new series in the book of Luke, which is uh, one of the Gospels, one of the accounts of Jesus' life and his teaching and his death and resurrection. And we're going to be in that series for a long time. So we've done some epic series in the past here at Hope Church, but this one's going to be a big one. And I'm really looking forward to getting stuck into uh, that book together. I know it's going to be helpful for those of us who do believe, but I know it's also going to be so helpful for those who are maybe looking in and wondering who Jesus is and what this is all about. So looking forward to that so much. But today, finishing the story of Joseph together, and I'm going to be uh, particularly looking at the, the sovereignty of God. I've called this message, The Promise of a Sovereign God. Now, we throw a lot of words around at church, and uh, sometimes we don't do very well at explaining what those words mean. These are Bible words, but we use words like righteousness and sanctification and fellowship and all these kinds of words, and they're not really very commonly used words uh, in day-to-day language. And we can do much better, I'm sure, at explaining what these words mean. And one such word is sovereign. We don't use this word much. We've probably used it more in the last three years than we have at any time in our nation's history, as we've been talking about whether or not the British government is truly sovereign, or whether or not it's the European Parliament, and everyone here will have very different opinions on that, I'm sure. Um, But when we use the word sovereign of God, what we are saying is that God has supreme power and authority, that God has supreme power and authority. And I want to touch on this very important foundational truth today about God as we bring this series to a close. Let me just give you a bit of a recap. If you've missed the previous weeks, we've been uh, looking at Joseph, who we first meet when he's 17 years old, and uh, he's looking after his dad's sheep, and he's the favorite of 12 sons. He's the firstborn of Jacob's second wife, Rachel, and Jacob loves him more than any of his other sons. And uh, that's already uh, difficult for his brothers to stomach. But then Joseph has a dream, or a series of dreams actually, in which he sees his brothers coming to bow down low before him, or effectively that's what he's seeing. And he shares this probably somewhat unwisely with his brothers, and it really winds them up. They get so mad at him, it only serves to stoke their jealousy, and they decide we're going to get rid of him. And so they, they beat him up, they throw him in a pit, and they bring back to Jacob, their dad, this robe, this really special robe that uh, Joseph had been given, and it's covered in blood, and they say, basically, Joseph's being killed by a wild animal. But Joseph hasn't been killed, he's been left for dead in this pit, and soon he's sold into slavery, and a guy called Potiphar buys Joseph and brings him to Egypt, and Potiphar is the henchman, he's the chief Uh, officer of Pharaoh, who's the king of Egypt. And uh, things start to go quite well for Joseph, working in Potiphar's household. He gets lots more responsibility. He gets put in charge of all the other slaves in the household, and things are going quite well for him. And then Potiphar's wife takes a shine to Joseph, who's a handsome guy, and she decides she's going to try and seduce him. And amazingly, Joseph resists. And in her humiliation that she's been rejected by Joseph, She decides that she's going to make up a story about how he tried to take advantage of her, that he tried to rape her, and he's then a wanted man. And he gets thrown in prison, and whilst he's in prison, he's able to uh, interpret the dreams of some of the royal officers. 
and uh, he gets this the reputation of being something of a dream interpreter, and then eventually he's able to interpret the dreams of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And he interprets the dreams of Pharaoh and says, there's going to come a great famine on this land. There's going to come seven years of famine after some good years. After good years where we're going to bring in lots of harvest, there's going to come a famine. And Pharaoh likes this. He likes the wisdom uh, that Joseph gives him because Joseph says, right, it's time to start storing away some food. We need to start getting ready for this famine. And uh, Pharaoh loves him for that and makes him prime minister of Egypt. So he's effectively the most powerful man in Egypt now. And then the famine strikes. Hunger comes across the whole region. And people start coming from other nations, including Joseph's brothers. They come to Egypt on the hunt for food, and they interact with Joseph, and they don't realize that it's Joseph. And then eventually he reveals himself to them, says, it's me, it's your brother who you tried to kill. And they fear for their lives at this point because Joseph could just literally end them right there. And instead of taking out revenge, he forgives them and he provides for them and their family. And the story, the the book of Genesis ends with Joseph's death, but his dying words to them are that the people of God Abraham's descendants will one day again be in Egypt, um, sorry, in Israel, in the land that God had promised them. It's a story that has so many twists and turns. It's so dramatic that it's, it makes the Bourne identity look tame. It makes Jason Bourne's life look kind of easy. It, it's, it's like uh, it's 10 times the life that Phil Mitchell has had in EastEnders when he gets shot and ends up, you know, coming back to life again and then divorced so many times. You know, this is, a, this is an extraordinary story. It's one that maybe they can make a musical out of sometime. Some of you know that already. But if we were just looking at this kind of in a shallow way, we might say it's a story about never giving up. You might say, well, yeah, he, he, Joseph never gave up. He never, uh, he never threw the towel in. And that is a lesson that we can draw from Joseph's life. But ultimately, it's a story about how Joseph trusted God's hand. It's a story about God's sovereign hand being at play in the life of Joseph. That's why we've called this series Trusting God's Hand, because it's in this story that we see that God is sovereignly at work. And we see a few places where we we kind of get to see behind the curtains, as it were, and see that it's actually God doing, uh, pulling the strings in this story. So firstly, in chapter 45 of Genesis, Joseph has just revealed his true identity to his brothers. And he says, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me here before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years And there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. So to the naked eye, it looks like it's his brother's actions that have meant he's ended up in the pit and then ended up in slavery in Egypt. But he's saying, it was God who sent me here. God's hand was at work. And we see this again in chapter 50, which we heard from last week. Joseph's about to die, and he's speaking with his brothers, and he says, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, 
to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So they had had evil intentions toward Joseph. They had committed great sin against him. And yet he's saying, I know that God has meant this for good. God has turned this around for good. And we look at then at Psalm 105, which is recounting this story. Again, just one more place in which we see clearly this is the work of God, not just the work of men, but God working all things together. And we see here in Psalm 105, verse 16, when he summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. It's clear from these verses that we've just read in Genesis and Psalm 105 that despite all the remarkable twists and turns and the ups and downs of Joseph's life, that God was very active in the background. That even in the long delays, Joseph spent as many as 11 years as a slave and at least two years in prison, despite all of these years of delay, that God never ceased to be sovereign, that God never uh, ceased to be involved. God's hand was active even in the silence and the delay and the pain. And this is so important for us to grasp. It's so important for us to take to our hearts today. It's so important we understand this. Because this God wasn't just sovereignly involved in Joseph's life. This same sovereign God who could be trusted by Joseph in great suffering can be trusted in our times of suffering, as we heard from Anna a few weeks ago. This same sovereign God who is just and right in all his ways can be trusted not just with Joseph's betrayers, but when we experience betrayal and when we experience pain, we can trust that God. This same sovereign God is at work. He can be trusted. He has supreme power and authority. He's large and in charge. And he's not just all powerful. He's just and he's all good. And he's committed to doing us good. And I believe it was these truths that Joseph had taken to his heart as he went through those times of suffering. These truths of God's greatness and of God's commitment to him that he held in his heart. And it's these truths that the Apostle Paul articulates thousands of years later when he's writing to a church in Rome. And in Romans chapter 8, he writes this, For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I'm going to read that one more time. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. This is one of the most vital Bible verses. This is such an important truth in this, uh, in this Bible verse that we are going to unpack today. I'm going to share eight things from Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Firstly, this is a promise to build your life upon. This is such a, a monstrously foundational truth. It's a mountainous foundational truth. If you have this truth laid down in your life, then you can build high upon it. We're in the process of a, a big building project right now, and I've learned way more about construction than I ever could have cared to have learned. I've learned way more about structural engineering than I, I could have ever wanted to learn, and yet I still only really know a fraction of what structural engineers know. And yet I've learned this, that the deeper and the stronger the foundations are, the higher and bigger the building can go. 
that the deeper you, you lay down foundations, the bigger and more impressive a building you can build. And I don't know about you, but I want to build a big life for God. I want to build a life that shows God off. I want to build a life that speaks to the world of his greatness and glory. And if I want to do that, then I've got to put down some foundations. I spoke with a friend this week. He said, I want to make my years count for God. Do you want to do that? You want to make your years count for God? Well, you need to lay down some foundations if you're going to build a big building in terms of your life for God. You need to put down some big foundations. And there really isn't much greater a foundation than this truth. Grasping the truth that God is sovereign, that he's good, and that he's committed to doing us good is a monstrously massive foundation. Secondly, this is a promise to all believers. It's to those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. It's for the children of God in Christ. And we see just slightly after this verse that we've read together that those called ones are the ones that God justifies, the ones he, he forgives of their sin and who he makes right in his sight. He makes righteous right in his sight. He not only forgives us and makes us right in his sight, but he calls us his children. He adopts us. He adopts you. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, you've been adopted by God. And he's committed himself to you. He's committed himself to you for life. And he's not just committed himself to you, that he's never going to leave you or forsake you. He's committed to doing you good. He's committed to doing you good throughout your life. This isn't just for heroes like Joseph. It's not just for next level Christians. Sometimes we like to excuse ourselves from truth. Saying, well, that's not really for me. That's for missionaries and nuns. They seem to be the ones that, you know, I think God might favor. No, no, this is for all those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. He's not turned against you if you're going through difficulty. He's not turned against you and nor has he abandoned you. No, he's committed to doing you good. He's adopted you. He's committed himself to you. Why don't we just maybe even just take a moment and say, this promise is for me. To say that in your heart or mind, this is for me. This promise is for me. I love God. I'm called according to his purpose. And therefore, I know he's working all things together for my good. Just take that moment. If you can't say that, if you can't bring yourself to say that, why don't you tell someone later, I'm struggling to believe this is for me. We'd love to talk with you, pray with you, help you. This is such an important thing for you to get a hold of. Thirdly, this is a promise that God has purpose for us. He saved us and he saved us for purpose. He had a purpose for Joseph that he was going to end up eventually leading this nation and saving thousands of lives, not just in Egypt, but beyond. He had purpose for Joseph and our purpose may or may not be as dramatic as that, but God has purpose for us nonetheless. He has purpose for us individually, things that he wants us to walk into. He has purpose for us as a church, things that he wants us to get a hold of in the years to come. He's got purpose for us. Do not say of yourself, I'm just a number. Do not say of yourself, I'm an insignificant part of God's family. No, he's got purpose for you. He saved you for purpose. He's called you for purpose. He's got things for you to do. And he's actively involved in working in the background for that purpose to be outworked. God's not a watchmaker who sort of winds up the watch at the beginning of history and just lets it unwind. Sometimes people might think that. They might 
think, well, God's just, yeah, he set it all off into motion. I can get that. And now he's just, yeah, hands off. That's not the God of the Bible. That's not the, the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is that he's actively involved. He actively cares. He's not passively watching on helplessly. He's got purpose for you. He's got things for you to do, a part for you to play in his kingdom. As I shared in the first message in this series, a big part of finding out what that purpose is, is just doing the stuff of walking with God in prayer with him, reading his words, serving others, being generous to others, loving others. And in time, God will make it clear what he specifically got you in this place to do. He will make that clear to you in time. But we've got plenty to be getting on with until that time. He has purpose for us. Do not say of yourself, I have not got purpose. No, he's called you according to his purpose. Fourthly, this is a promise that you cannot ultimately be defeated. This is not a promise that all things will be good in your life. That's a huge misconception of Christianity that essentially Christianity is a get out of suffering free card. That once we trust in Jesus that it's all going to be rosy and uh, life's going to be dancing around in fields of flowers and singing Kumbaya. And Listen, massive misconception. You would have to read the Bible with your eyes closed if you come to that conclusion. But there's a promise here that God is for us and not against us. He's committed to our good. And if all things are working together ultimately for my good, then I, I cannot be defeated. As I set out to make Jesus famous, as I set out to point others to him, I cannot ultimately be defeated because even if I fail, God's still going to do me good. And so we need to understand this great news. When we understand this, our attitude changes. Our attitude becomes like that of the, the writer of the book of Hebrews, where he says in chapter 13, keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? There's other versions which says, what, what can mere man do to me? When we set out to, to live for Jesus, then even if we fail, even when we come unstuck, even when we uh, fall down, we cannot be defeated because God is for us and he's not against us. And ultimately, he's working to do us good. When we understand these truths, that, that allows us to live life with that kind of attitude. What can mere man do to me? God is never going to leave me or forsake me. He's got my good in his mind. Fifthly, this is a promise of good. Michael Eaton said, The message of Romans 8.28 is that when everything looks like it's going wrong, it's actually going right. This promise means we should never believe that a painful turn of events is God punishing us. A Christian's suffering is never God's punishment. I've chosen my words very carefully there. A Christian's suffering is never God's punishment because we in Christ, we no longer face punishment because Jesus has borne the punishment upon himself that we deserve for our wrongdoing. But God will discipline us. He will allow things to come our way to shape us and change us and to make us more like Jesus, but it's all ultimately with our good in mind. And so this is a promise of good. It's hard to believe that God is for us sometimes when 
several tragedies come in a row or when it just looks like things are going well and suddenly something else comes in. Does that happen to you? It, might ha- it happens to me. Like Joseph, it's going well for him. He's got the favor of his dad and he's getting these dreams. He's got this emerging prophetic gift coming through. And then the next thing, he's beaten up by his brothers and left in a pit. And then it's going well for him again. And he's rising up the ranks in, in Potiphar's household. And then suddenly he's accused of rape and he's ended up in prison. And then he's made prime minister years down the line. And it looks like, wow, he's made it. And then suddenly there's going to be a massive famine that's going to come to the land. Which, you know, is a national crisis that will, will make Brexit look like child's play. You can have seven years of no food, basically, is what he's told. And it's quite hard to believe God's for us and that he's working all things for our good when lots and lots of things come our way. And just when we think we're getting over that hill, something else comes in. How foolish it would be if we throw the towel in and quit trusting God when what's going on behind the scenes is that God is moving us forward more and more to glory. He's making us more and more like Jesus. He's working on us. He's working all things together for our good. How foolish would it have been had Joseph stopped trusting God when he was in prison? When God was doing stuff, even when he was in prison, how foolish it would have been for him to say, I'm going to throw the towel in now. When everything looked like it was going wrong, it was actually going right. Bad things, confusing things, painful things, these are part of the all things that Paul has in mind when he says that in all things, God is working together for our good. God is working all things together for our good. Sixthly, this is a promise to settle right now. And I want to, I want to urge you, I want to appeal to you to settle this, these truths in your heart right now. To not think, well, life's pretty good right now. So I'm just going to remember this sermon for when hard times come. In fact, I'm going to re-download it in a few years' time. Or I'm going to come back to the story of Joseph when difficulties come. No, no, settle this in your hearts now. Settle in your hearts now the truth. Set it in prayer. Say it in prayer to God. God, I trust you and I'm going to go on trusting you. God, you are good. God, you are sovereign. You never cease to be in control. You never cease to be on the throne. You never cease to have supreme power and authority. God, you are committed to me. You have my best in mind. God, you are not an absent father. God, you you don't walk out on your kids. You're not a lazy dad. You're the master doing thousand things behind the scenes. You never slumber or sleep. You're weaving things together in your sovereignty. Let me urge you, settle these things in your heart now, especially if you're going through a good time, especially if you're in a time of plenty and not in a time of famine. Settle these things in your heart now so that when the time of trial comes, and it will come, you won't have these debates about God's character in your mind. Is he really good? Is he, is he really for me? Does he really stick to his promises? Settle it now. Settle it up front now. I'm going to trust God. You will be rock solid when you settle this in your heart. This is a promise that can make your life rock solid. I want you to think about the most fruitful person you know. Who's your hero in the faith? Someone that you know. Who, who is it that you look to and think, oh, I just wish I was like them. I wish I could be like, fruitful like them. They, they encourage so many people. They lead people to Jesus all of the time. They, what it might, whatever it might be. What, who is that person to you? Just think about that person for a moment. It's my bet that they are people who are 
solid, rock-solid people in this truth. They may not be flashy. When I think about the heroes of, of the faith that I know and can think of, they're not flashy people. They don't have gifts that make you go, wow. But they're people who are rock-solid in the truth. They're rock-solid in this truth. They're not people who are emotionless. They get emotional. They're people who don't, they don't just grit their teeth when hard times come. No, they, they're able to process grief and sorrow and joy and pain, all that kind of stuff. But they're solid in the truth of God's sovereignty and his goodness. It's possible to show emotion. It's possible to be aff- affected in some way by the storms of this life and yet to still be rock-solid, unshakable people. It's possible. This comes as we get a hold of these promises and we take it deep down inside of us and we reflect on the, the greatness of God and his sovereignty. That we see that he's pledged to make everything beneficial in the end to his people. He's pledged to say, in all things, I am going to work everything to your benefit. Not just nice things, even tough things. Even tough things like family feuds and betrayal as Joseph experienced. John Piper says of this verse, Romans 8, 28, if you live inside this massive promise, your life will be as solid as Mount Everest. Nothing can blow you over inside the walls of this promise. Outside of this promise, it's confusion and anxiety and fear and uncertainty. And that's the way of our world, it seems, right now. It's confusion and anxiety, fear and uncertainty. And we try to numb the pain through escapism. It might be that we just want to play computer games endlessly to get away from uh, the pain and the pressure. It might be that we, we want to, uh, to numb it with drugs or alcohol. And we think, I just want the pressure to stop. I want the uncertainty to go away for a minute. We might think, I can never be left to my own devices. I have to be contacting people all of the time. I think you need to be WhatsApping someone. Because when the silence comes, then I realize that I'm not in control of the world. That's when I realize I don't have it all under my control because I have a moment to think about it. And I think, oh, I'm not God. Listen, if you live inside of this truth, this promise, we don't need escapism. We don't need to build straw houses of escapism and whatever else it might be for you. Once you settle this in your heart, everything changes. This comes into your life and it, and it brings stability and depth. And listen, stability is surprisingly refreshing in our current society. Stability, rock solidness, surprisingly refreshing. People will look at you and think, why on earth are you so stable? Why on earth are you not panicking? How are you anchored? What's going on in your heart? Solid people are fruitful people. Solid people have a confidence that a sovereign God is governing all things, and he's working out all things for their good. Listen, this is an amazing promise, and it's a promise we know that God will keep. It's a promise that we know God will keep. Paul says it, we know. We know it. It's not we think, or we feel, or we consider it. No, he says we know it. We know that in all things, We know. How could he know this? Well, just a couple of verses later, he gives us the answer. 
It's a verse we've come back to again and again in this church, even in recent weeks. But it's such an important verse. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God didn't spare his own son from us. And we can look at what Jesus has done for us on the cross and we can say, I know. In light of what he's done for me, I know this to be true, that God is working all things together for my good. He always does what's good for us. Even to the point of sending his son to step into the storm, a storm not of his own creation, but a storm of our making. A storm of our making, he stepped into so that we didn't have to. And a guy called John Flavel, who lived hundreds of years ago, he said this of this promise, Surely, if God would not spare his own son one stroke, one tear, one groan, one sigh, one circumstance of misery, it can never be imagined that he ever should, after this, deny or withhold from his people, for whose sakes all this was suffered, any mercies, any comforts, any privilege, spiritual or temporal, which is good for them. God's not going to hold back anything that we need that is good for us because he, he didn't hold back his only son. And we're going we're gonna to bring things to uh, a close today by, by celebrating what Jesus has done for us, by taking bread and juice in this case, and we're going to celebrate what he's done for us. We read about Jesus, who on the last supper that he had with his closest friends, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And what we're going to be doing this afternoon, right now, is we're going to be proclaiming what Jesus has done for us. When we understand God is sovereign and powerful, supremely powerful and in all authority, that's good news, but it's even better news when we look at the cross and we see that he is good, that he's committed to us, that he's gone to this great length to free us and save us and clean us of all of our dirt and our mess. And so what we're going to do is we're going to, uh, in a moment, just come to the stations around the room and take bread and a cup. And we're going to take it back to our seats. And I, I want you just, rather than, sometimes we just drink the drink really quickly and really not give much thought to what we're doing here. This is the cup of the new covenant, the new agreement that has been won for us by Jesus. So as we, as we hold this cup in our hand, let's consider that the new agreement is one that's been won for us, not by our own works, not by our own good deeds, because all of us have failed. Even by our own standards, we've failed. This new agreement is one that has been won for us by Jesus' obedience to God. That we, This new agreement is one in which we can come before God with freedom and confidence because of what Jesus has done. 
And as we eat this bread, we're considering that his body was broken instead of mine. And we're proclaiming what he's done for us until he comes again. That's what that verse says, until he comes again. We're proclaiming what he's done for us. We can, as we even eat this bread and drink this juice, let's consider Jesus is coming again. And he said to his disciples on that evening, we're going to drink wine together in the kingdom. You're going to get to drink wine with Jesus in the kingdom. We're going to raise a toast to the king of kings. We're going to be with him. And all of this, all of this, as we've even heard read out this morning, all of this suffering, all of this difficulty that we might be enduring is going to be no more. He's going to wipe every tear from every eye. We can trust this God, this sovereign God. I want to pray for us. Maybe even just put your hands out before you, just as a sign saying, God, I want to receive this truth. I want to, I want to receive from you right now. Father, we thank you this afternoon that you have not withheld from us your very best. That Jesus was sent for our salvation. And Lord, as we consider the cross, as we consider Jesus' body broken for us and his blood poured out for us, we, we look ahead and we see a good God who has only our good in mind. I'm just, um, just going to pause praying for a moment. I, I think this is an opportunity right now for many just to settle this in their heart, actually. To say to God, I trust you and I'm going to trust your hand. And even when I, I cannot understand what's going on, I'm still going to trust you. And I'm, I'm not going to throw the towel in I'm not going to start having debates about whether or not God is really good. I'm going to trust that this promise is for me. He's committed to doing me good. Just maybe just take a moment and just say, I'm going to settle this right now. He's not a killjoy. He's not someone who will withhold any good thing back from you that you need. Lord, we just want to settle this in our hearts right now. We want to be people who are able to live courageously in light of this promise. We want this to be a, a massive foundation of our lives because we want to build big lives for your glory. Help us, Lord, to know your good you're sovereign and you've made this massive promise to us and Lord as we look at the cross we don't doubt your sincerity as we look at the resurrection we don't doubt your ability to work out that promise Lord we love you Lord and we just want to remember what you've done for us now and celebrate what you've done for us in Jesus name Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. Please feel free to make a copy of this content, but please do not edit the content in any way.